And then I was so grateful I had been rejected because I was like, no part of me wanted that memoir to be out traipsing her little storylines throughout the world at that point. I was like, thank God I saved it for this. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. We are about to dive into an incredible episode. But before we do, I have really exciting news. My book, Come Home to Your Heart, is out in the world. Ah! (laughs) I truly wrote this book from my heart to your heart, and I shared a ton of essays about these little life moments that really restored my spirit. And then after each essay, I gave journaling prompts so that you can tap into your own innate wisdom and ultimately fall back in love with yourself. So if you want to start in on this heart journey, I put the link to the book in the show notes and you can also check it out online wherever books are sold bookshop.com barnes and noble amazon is there everywhere all right without further ado let's get into our show i am beyond thrilled <laughs> that our guest today linda sievertson is joining us because she has the most incredible book out called Beautiful Writers. And it is full of all the conversations she has had with best-selling authors, all of my favorites, Elizabeth Gilbert, Martha Beck, Cheryl Strayed, many, many more. And she has put all of their advice into a single book so that we can dive in and get all of those goodies. And she infuses her own writing journey along the way. And in addition to that, she has co-authored books. She has connected so many writers around the world with agents and editors. She eats, breathes, sleeps, books, writing, everything. And I couldn't be more thrilled than to have her here today. Hi, Linda. You love book. I'm so happy to be here. I love your show. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. Incredible. So. It's my pleasure. Well, I want to go back in time a little bit to how this writing thing came to be, because I absolutely love your story in the book of how you became a writer. And there are some serendipitous things that also happened along the way. So take us back a little bit. Oh my gosh. Well, I always wanted to be a writer. So I was one of those kids that dreamed about it as I would like smell the onion skin pages of the 1910 Encyclopedia Britannica in our living room library. So, and my parents thought that books were kind of like the pinnacle of society, right? But you, to be an author would be better than being the president of the United States or even a movie star. So that's kind of the 
energy of how I was raised. And, but I didn't think I was smart enough. I never really tried that hard in school. I, I found school a little boring. I liked the sports. I liked the, the community. I liked the friendships, but uh, yeah, it took a lot to hold my attention. So I had a dream. It was 19, gosh, I don't even remember what year it was, maybe like in 92. And I had a dream that told me I had six books to write and it laid out all of the books with titles and format. And I saw pages and pages of scrolling text. And I, I was so certain that I could do it. I sat at the bottom of my closet with a flash. I didn't want to wake up my family who was right outside the door, my son and my husband. And I just took pages and pages of scroll, like 60 pages. And I could see the books. I could feel them. So I had no reservation. I mean, I just was like, oh, okay, I'm totally doing this. I'll be on Oprah in a year, like easy breezy, you know, and that happened after I had a prophecy. So And that's part of the mystical nature of the book, where I think we all get signs and little snippets of things from the universe trying to point us in the right direction for things. And I just had some real mystical sort of signposts from people who were kind of prophesizing this future for me. And so when I had the dream, I 100% believed it. But as I write about, just because you have a dream, just actually getting there is always very different. And it's pretty humorous. Oh my gosh. And so you have all these notes, you have pages and pages of notes. You could see the books. Oh yeah. How do you then go from dream to tactile books on bookstore shelves? Yeah. It's a great question. I think I was so determined because I hadn't felt smart in school because I was in the bottom third of my graduating class because the smarty pants, mean girls made fun of me. I was like, whoa, driven. I mean, I had that dream and I was like, hot damn. Now I can prove myself to myself, to my parents who wasted all that money on the college graduation that I bailed on at the end, like, or the college uh, diploma. So I, I was so driven and so inspired by the dream, frankly, because it felt as if it was my destiny. It felt as if I was being told, here you go. Now go do it. And I wasn't going to turn that down. I wasn't going to say, well, thank you, angels, or whoever (laughs) said me, thank you so much, book angels, but uh, I'm scared, or I don't think I can do it, or I've got something better to do. Like, are you kidding me? I knew that it was rare to be given a gift like that. I knew it wasn't normal. I had never had a dream like that in my life. So I just was determined. So you show up, you just keep showing up every day. I would get back in that closet at 3am, just like the dream. I thought, well, if that's where it happened, I'm just going to keep showing up. And the, the dictation kept happening. I mean, I, I literally took dictation for six months and I feel like I had so much energy built up because I didn't feel smart growing up. And I felt so bad about that, that once you get some momentum in, in, in an area of your life where you've had shame, it becomes so exciting. And there, it's like this 
very fulfilling process where I could tell that I had value. I could tell that the stories were interesting. I knew that this was going somewhere. And so that kept me wanting to wake up at 3 a.m. It kept me wanting to go to bed early so that I could wake up at 3 a.m. before the family got up. And then every little win you have kind of continues the momentum. Yes. And to think about juggling parent partner roles along with writing, it's hard. I think it can get the best of most of us. And so I, when I read that story in your book and realized how dedicated you were, like waking up before dawn every day and just doing it and doing it, I thought, wow, if, if we could give everyone a little dose of that (laughs) that motivation, I know, Nadine, I think about it now and I can't imagine doing that. Like, who was that girl? And I did it for decades. I mean, for book after book after book, but I don't do it now. I mean, I let myself sleep until seven now (laughs) and it's like seven even feels too early to wake up some days now. And I'm like, ah, thank God for that girl. Thank God for her drive. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the beginning you were working on lives charmed and I noticed throughout the book, beautiful writers that you just always happen to have these connections with, um, people who have really big audiences and it was kind of the basis for life's charmed and also becoming beautiful writers podcast of like connecting to all of these, these incredible authors. So how did you start creating these connections, say for life's charmed and then moving forward? You know, it was, I was very, very naive and wide-eyed and big-hearted. So I think that the way it originally started was that when I was a dog walker in Beverly Hills and Hollywood, I had a celebrity clientele. I had a great job for myself that I had created. I was a dog walker. And, and honestly, that came to me in a vision too. So as a rule, I don't dream hardly ever. And as a rule, I don't have visions, waking visions, but I happened to, in this one case, I was sort of desperate for a job. My husband, who I just married, who I did not know very well, was like, get a fucking job because I, I was like, dad had paid for college that I didn't finish. I still had a little credit card from daddy. I was naive and spoiled and he probably figured lazy. So I'm praying and going, God, please, I need a job. I need to do, figure out what to do. And I had this vision that I was a dog walker in Beverly Hills. <laughs> so I made flyers and I got a job at a pet store. And my husband thought that was insane. And I was like, I thought I had made up this job. I didn't know it's like a real career, but <laughs> I was so excited because I'm such an animal freak and I'm such an exercise freak. So I thought, oh, Perfect. And as I am working at this pet store, my prayer for the job for crappy $5 an hour or whatever they paid me was, let me meet the most magical people who will change my life. Mm -hmm. Now, I never thought of it beyond that, Nadine. I didn't like envision how that would manifest or what that would look like. It was just purely a heart wish. Let me meet magical people that will change my life. So one day, Paul Williams, the Academy Award-winning songwriter for Evergreen with Barbara Streisand comes in 
And he happens to call the next day looking for a kennel for his dogs. And I gave him the number and I said, and by the way, I'm a dog walker and I love Huskies because I knew he had Huskies. And he's like, how soon can you be here? <laughs> Two hours later, because my manager totally let me go. Two hours later, I am running through the Hollywood Hills with his Huskies, like sled riding. And he was going to rehab the next day for six weeks. And he said, I like you and your husband so much. I'll tell my manager, he doesn't need to stay here. Will you guys move in? And we did, and we didn't leave for two years. We became family. And that was kind of the beginning of how I just kept finding myself in magical situations with magical people. And they would see my purity of heart about their animals. And I'm living or working in their homes. And so we bonded. And so like, for instance, when the, that first book did get published, some of those celebrities would do the media with me. They'd go on the talk shows with me because they were so grateful for how I had helped their lives. And it was a win-win. My point is like, I think when you have a goal in life, my goal at the time was to be the very best dog walker I could be. I had no awareness that I would have a dream that would tell me to write their life stories and blah, blah, blah. All I wanted to do was be a good dog walker. But because I was working in celebrity homes, because I was so pure of intention, they trusted me and they loved me. And therefore, when it came time to tell their life stories, which were really painful, they gave me their life stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a, a really good reminder for me and I'm loving reliving it now. So thank you. It's a good reminder to just don't worry about the end result. Just pour your heart into the thing that you love. And then magic often shows up. Mm. And it's so true. You know, you are so big hearted. I've gotten to take online classes with you and you come onto the screen with energy that comes through Zoom. I mean, like <laughs> you just radiate love. And so I have no doubt that if I can see it through a screen, that they could feel it in person. And really know that you were pure and true in your intention to just be the best and take care of their animals. And then that just ripple affected. Yeah. Getting on the ground and just making out with somebody's German shepherd endears you. <laughs> it's very endearing. <laughs> yeah. They're like, she's a keeper. Oh my God. <laughs> so you wrote many books, co-authored books as well. And then you started this beautiful writers podcast. And I would love for you to share how that idea came into being. Well, I always wanted more information from authors. You know, I was in the trenches struggling like my, you know, I had, I had some really good writing sort of credits under my belt, but I always wondered like, how did the Elizabeth Gilberts of the world do it? How do, how are people like Dean Koontz who had sold a half a billion books? Like, how are they so prolific? You know, things would take me so long. And I felt like I was always doing things the hard way, despite the magic. And so I, I really wanted to interview these best-selling authors, the, my idols, and then one day, Danielle Laporte and I had written Your Big Beautiful Book Plan, which 
we sold online, we still sell it online. And kind of like walking everybody through an idea to book proposal and getting it sold. Like, what is that process? So we were so proud of it. We loved it so much. And so I said to Danielle, it was selling really, really well. And I said, I think we need to create a membership community around your big, beautiful book plan because it's kind of big and I think they need more support, not totally unlike your beautiful community. So we did that. We created a beautiful writers group. And one day I said to her, I think we need to offer interviews for our group so that they can hear from our author friends. At the time, I was getting to know Elizabeth Gilbert a bit, and we both knew Martha Beck a bit, and we knew Danny Shapiro a bit. So it's not like we were best friends with these people, but we were forging connections. There was some good synergy between all of us. And I said, let's ask Martha and Elizabeth and Danny Shapiro and Jillian Lauren, let's ask them if they will let us interview them for our group. And they said, yes. And then one day I said to Danielle, whoa, there's these podcast things, you know, like the podcasting was, it wasn't new, but this was seven years ago. So it was not like it is now. Right. Right. And I had just started listening to a few podcasts and I said, instead of making these for 300 people, how about we make these for a wider audience and put these interviews on iTunes? And she agreed. And because we had banked such kind of beloved names and because we launched them together at the same time so people could binge listen if they liked the show, as opposed to, you know, doling out one at a time, which I now do like once a month, if not once every two or three months, I think we just caught fire right away. We were very blessed that way. And also Danielle's platform was a lot bigger than mine. So that was not a bad decision on my part. (laughs) Yeah. One of the more smart moves of my career. You've had many, many smart moves. And I think that one of the things that stands out is just your willingness to ask. I think that a lot of people get scared about sending that pitch or doing the big ask or putting themselves out there because they're just afraid of the what ifs. And I have seen through just beautiful writers, all the times you put yourself out there. Are you afraid to ask? Does it come naturally? Or Always, every time. It's oh, okay. Horrible. I hate it. As a matter of fact, I just wrote down willingness to ask as a note <laughs> to self. Because I have a couple big asks to make right now. And I drag my feet. I hate it, hate it, hate it. And I am aware that if you don't ask, people won't say yes. You know, it's very rare, Nadine, that somebody's sitting around thinking, how can I help Nadine? (laughs) Let me think. And, you know, one of the challenges I've always had in my life, I remember this very clearly after my ex-husband bailed on our 19-year marriage for another girl, when I started asking for help people said to me, wow, I would never look at you and think you need help. Mm -hmm. Like people think that I got my shit together. They don't necessarily think, how can I help her? (laughs) 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 And so 
They don't know what kind of trauma or drama or pain I might be in, which is frequent. Like they don't, they don't know. And Instagram's not going to show them that, or I'm not going to show it on Instagram. So I have learned that if I humble myself and say, Hey, can you, if I'm very specific, so like, if you ask a general, can you help me? You're likely to bomb. But I remember when I was trying to get PR for my first book and Lisa Gibbons was an acquaintance and I had finally landed an interview with her. It took me asking and asking. Well, then I wanted to ask her, can I be on your talk show? You know, it was a big talk show at the time. And that was super scary. But I thought if I make my request very specific, it's easier for her to say yes. So I said, if I get a publisher and if you like the book, will you consider having me on your talk show? That's a pretty non-binding question. It's not saying the talk show police are going to put you in jail if you don't put Linda on your show, right? Yeah. But it's but it's basically saying, if I can prove to you that I'm bankable, if I'm good enough, will you maybe give me a chance? And she said, yes. So, and then I said, would you mind putting that in writing, which then helped me get a book deal, right? And then by that point, she was pretty bought in once I got a book deal, it, but I still had to make that call. Hey, could I be on your show? And, and then you have to figure out what's in it for them. Like, how can you make them excited to say yes? So I delivered a show to her producers. I said, Catherine Oxenberg is willing to come on and talk about the incest she experienced in the royal family and the resulting bulimia. Paul Williams is willing to come on and talk about how he was an alcoholic and a drug addict for 25 years and wrote some of the most codependent anthems of the 70s, higher than the Hollywood sign next to his house. You know, so I was able to bring her something that she needed, which was beloved celebrities willing to talk about the tabloid aspect of their lives and how they had healed, which then made having little Linda on the show, first time author, easier to say yes to. Right. So I always try to remember that, like right now, there's somebody that I would really like to pitch that I'm dragging my feet about pitching because it's scary. Mm -hmm. And, um, I have been listening to their show thinking, how is it that my work can tie in with their work to help their audience get what's in alignment with their goals, right? You always want to tie in whatever you're doing into how can you help their goals move forward? Because it doesn't matter if you're the most famous person in the world, you still have something you're, you're going for. There's still something you want. And if you can try to angle it so that you can help them get there, you're going to be more likely to succeed. It's so smart. I mean, it's just, and it's good karma. You know, you help me, I help you. The energy goes back and forth and it feels less icky because it's like, I'm providing something that's useful to you while at the same time asking for help. And, and I do think there is that, like the bigger the ask, the bigger the, the feet dragging. So I, I do what I call brave days. I have them once to twice a month. I have a brave day. And I force myself on my brave day to do all the big asks. <laughs> right, not down. 
I'm going to put brave days, two of them a month on the calendar. <laughs> I love it. It's just like, and I'm going to ask my astrologer sister, what are the best auspicious brave days according to your ancient Sanskrit calendar? Oh my God. See, I need to figure that out. <laughs> Don't we all, I swear. Oh, so that's, what's incredible is even though it's scary, you have figured out a way to put out these, these big asks and to create really wonderful relationships. What I loved when I started listening to beautiful writers was not just the tips that the authors gave. I loved hearing the camaraderie between you and the guests. And then you had this beautiful idea that I was like, why haven't more people thought of this that where two authors would come on at a time and go back and forth with each other. They're like, it's like a three host situation. So how did, how did that come into being? Well, when Danielle and I, we did the podcast together for about a year and she had said to me going in, I'm only doing this for a year. Danielle's not a big joiner and actually either am I, I love doing things solo. So much of my life is about collaboration that when I can, I I'm always trying to do something by myself And, um, so, but when she left, I thought, oh God, I can't, I can't keep doing this. Like how nobody's going to want to hear just me. And I really, I was intimidated. I thought Daniel Laporte has this silky smooth voice and she's so spiritual and she's an Oprah top 100 leader. And she's got a bazillion followers and who am I? Like, there's no way I can do this by myself. And I sat with that insecurity for about an hour. Hmm. And then I was like, Linda, you love this show. This show is your idea. You wrote the opening and gave her the lines. Like, don't throw it all out because you're afraid. Hmm. So I said a prayer. I was like, okay, God. And I should say, I'm not even a religious person, but I just really believe in co-creation with a benevolent force. So I was like, okay, God help me make the show bigger. How can the show be even better? And I, I said, who should I interview next? And I heard Glennon Doyle. Hmm. I didn't even know who Glennon Doyle was. I mean, she had 4 million blog post readers a day or some crazy number. And I did not know who she was. I don't know. I'd been too busy to look up and notice how famous she was. Glennon's she's been on once as a guest and then twice as a co-host. She did the Van Jones episode with me. And she also guest co-hosted for Anne Lamont, which was so they had never met. I love putting people who freaking adore each other, but have never met on the show and then watch as they become besties. Like that's just such a fun thing. So at any rate, you thought, okay, Glennon Doyle didn't know who, didn't she, know was. who she was. And, but I trusted the, the name. So I did a deep dive and I fell in love with her. So reading her blog religiously. And so I thought, well, who would she love? And I thought, I bet she would love Martha Beck. I'm guessing they would be an amazing duo. So I emailed Martha and I said, would you like to guest host with me for Glennon Doyle? And she was like, hell yes. And I don't remember, I don't think they knew each other yet. They're now really, really tight. And I don't know if any of that has to do with me, but don't think they were, they were friends yet. And uh, it ended up being the biggest show by a landslide that we had ever done. I think it was 
I don't know if it was as big. We had done Brene Brown right before Danielle left. I think it was Brene Brown and Marianne Williamson and then Danielle left. And Brene's show was huge, huge, huge numbers. But I think Glennon was even bigger than that. At, at any rate, it was real for me to start by myself with that was just like that gave me the the sort of confidence to keep going. I was like, okay, God, if if you have that in store for me, what else? What else could we do? And then when like Tom Hanks came on, I was like, okay, I can do this by myself. But but to bring in a new guest host each week was kind of inspired by SNL. So SNL, when they asked George Carlin if he would be the host, he said no. And they were really disappointed. But as legend, as I heard the legend, they went, well, what if we just brought a different person each time and bring their audience with them? And that's that seemed like a winning formula to me. Oh my gosh, it's so brilliant. When I started listening to those episodes, I was like, oh my gosh, this is genius. <laughs> and it also just felt like three people sitting around over coffee talking too. It, it just felt really natural. And I don't know why I think about this, but I think about my last supper, my writer's last supper and who I would want to be at the table. And it would be Martha Beck, Glennon Doyle, <laughs> Elizabeth Gilbert, Shauna Nequist, Renee Brown and Jen Hatmaker. Like I've oh already got it. What a great meal. What a great meal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be a good lineup, but I got to just be with most of them on your show. So <laughs> by listening to your show. So that's what it feels like. It feels like, oh, okay. While I may not know these people, I get to, they get to come with me on my walks. Right. Right. That's so funny because the, one of the hardest things, and I know you know this because you're an author, is figuring out the back cover copy for your book, right? That is so excruciating yeah. for me every time. And I was talking on the phone with some friends and they said, well, what if you said something like this? And the gist of it was you're at a dinner party and around the table are the most famous authors in the world and you're the host. And as you're telling your stories about the over-the-top things you did to get published, the face plants, the embarrassing things, the practical things that worked, they're chiming in with their, oh my God, listen to what I did stories. And I thought, that's it. That's exactly how I wanted the show to feel. And that's how I wanted the book to feel. So thank you for reminding me of that as well. Yes. And so that leads to the question of, when did you realize that the podcast could turn into a book? I think it was from a disaster. Mm. I had written a memoir that I didn't sell. So I'd written a memoir about my divorce. And it was called My Midlife Mess. And I had worked on it for many years. And I absolutely loved the concept of the book. But the day before I went to meet editors in New York, my agent was meeting me there. I went to read the whole thing and realized I didn't like it. I loved pieces of it, but I had edited it incorrectly, kind of piecemeal and hadn't really read the whole thing in one swoop and go to New York. And some of the editors were like, oh my gosh, I love these publishing stories. They're so funny. They're so interesting. They're so vulnerable can you do more of those? And I'm like, well, but it's a divorce book. 
Um, and then others were like, hey, the, these just do more divorce stuff. We want more salacious stuff. And so I was so devastated. And I just kind of gave the book back to the universe. I just said, you know what? I'm exhausted and I don't know what to do. And I'm going to lay low. And I just kept doing the thing that I loved the most, which was the podcast. And then one day, like a year after that devastating New York trip, I woke up and I was like, wait a minute. What if I did the coming of career, clawing my way to the middle writing memoir? And I intersperse the wisdom from the show. So like when I'm showing a face plant about trying to woo an agent, we hear about how Danny Shapiro got the top agent at ICM when she was a nobody and she was doing all the wrong things. Like how did Terry McMillan get an agent? So once I saw the way I could thread their wisdom into my stories, I got super jazzed because I was like, oh, it's been under my nose all along. And now I actually have the show to promote it. I just thought, wow, how does that happen? And then I was so grateful I had been rejected because I was like, no part of me wanted that memoir to be out traipsing her little storylines throughout the world at that point. I was like, thank God I saved it for this. Wow. 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 And you write a little bit about it, or maybe you talked about it in one of your recent episodes about some help along the way in terms of structure. Was it Anita Morjani that helped no. structure? So remember. structure was what? really, really complicated for me because that initial thought that I had was like, oh, I'll just write my writing memoir and plunk in their wisdom. But it's like, where do you plunk in their wisdom? And how do you create the bridges and the through lines? So the way I was working on it and my mentor agreed was that I would tell my story through an entire chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, I would just excerpt all the pieces from the celebrities that matched the, the topic of that chapter. So it's like you read my whole story on getting an agent and then there's boom, 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 you know, six celebrities talking about it and 62 in total. And I was working with it that way for a long time and I loved it, but I wasn't, it, I knew something didn't feel finished, but I didn't know what it was. And nobody knew what it was and everybody felt like it wasn't finished. And so it was so complicated. It was like when I went shopping for an agent, I have so many agent friends that I work with in my business that I really had to take my time. And I took meetings over Zoom during COVID for like two months interviewing agent friends and finally, finally like narrowed it down. I mean, it was a high quality problem, but it was hard for me. And all of the agents kind of said the same thing. I love you, Linda. I love this book. I love the celebrities. I love your platform, but there's something missing. <laughs> like, but nobody knew what it was. Yeah. And, and several mm -hmm. agents, like world famous agents that I'm like, so enamored by were like, I don't know what it is, but we'll figure it out. And I just couldn't go with the, we'll figure it out. I went with the agent who said, it's perfect. Because I thought, well, maybe it is perfect. I'll just do that. Yeah. And then we start sending it out to editors. And they're 
same thing, something's missing. And it was her, my agent, who figured it out. She said, no, no, I take it back. She figured out one piece. She said, let's, let's do a teachable at the top of each chapter, where instead of just going straight into your memoir pieces, there's like a pain point, like, what if you don't feel smart enough. Mm. What if your papers were covered in red ink? What if, you know, people laughed at you and made fun of your creativity? How do you do that? You know, some kind of pain point at the beginning. Then I go into my memoir stories, but I still had the celebrity pieces tacked in at the end. Well, we got a book deal with that. That was strong enough to get a book deal. And then my editor, when I delivered the whole book, she sent me back. So don't hate me, but what if you take the celebrity pieces and thread them throughout the storylines as opposed to all tacked on at the end of each chapter? And I wanted to be horrified by that because that sounded like so much more work for me. And, and yet I, I had yeah. that feeling in the pit of my stomach of excitement. And I was like, Ooh, I think this might be good. And it was so hard to rework it. It was so hard and so exhausting. I swear to God, I lost like five years of my life and, um, and it's, <laughs> it was the best decision ever. So that's a long way of saying books are slippery motherfuckers. They are hard mm -hmm. to nail down so much of the time for so many of us. It doesn't matter how many books I had written or ghostwritten. It doesn't matter how many bestsellers you've got to your name. Every book, as Saba Tahir says, is a new mountain. And every single book has its particular challenges. And they are all slippery. They just are. So interesting. And it's so validating because my last book that I was working on, like for a long time, I couldn't figure out what the heck it was. I was writing these little essays and I was like, what the heck is this? And I couldn't, something felt so off that it was a similar thing. I was like, all right, I'm taking a break from this. And then the pandemic hit and I missed reading on stage in Chicago. I would read on stage all the time when we lived in Chicago. I loved it. Like the, I'm shy in person, but get me on a stage. And I'm like, oh. so where are you reading? Like know. at Moth or where? Yeah. So there would be lots of featured mic nights where it's like you, they would have open mic, but they would have featured readers. And so there's a organization called Second Story and lots of like, uh, they call it a live lit scene. Chicago has a huge live lit scene. Oh and so I would just it was so fun. It was so fun. So read, read. And so pandemic hits. I am now teaching everything on Zoom. I'm not reading my work out loud. I'm in my house and I'm itch. I'm itchy, itchy. And I'm going, oh my God, if I do not read a story out loud to someone, I'm going to lose my mind. And so I started this podcast because I was like, I'm just going to read my stories on uh, through a microphone and put it out there and see what happens. And eventually I started interviewing other people and things, but it, it started out as me just reading. And eventually when I would read these stories, then afterwards I would instinctively then talk to the listener and go, okay, now what about you? And here's some questions for you to think about. And I would always do this kind of reflection yeah. at the end and literally similar a year passed and I went one day, I just kind of was like, 
Oh, oh, this is a book where it's like my story, your story, my story, your story. And I was like, oh, it's part essay collection, part journal. And it was like, so duh. It was like one of those moments where it was like, as you say, right underneath your nose. <laughs> it only took me about four and a half years of, you know, total to right. kind of figure yeah. that out. So good. But that's so good because that's, that's in line with that old thing. What do you love so much that you don't care if you ever get paid for it? You loved it so much yeah. that it just was so authentic. Yeah. Well, I'm just glad to know that I'm not alone. And, and you are so good at really connecting people with agents and editors. Like that's a huge part of your business. And I wonder how that kind of evolved. How did you form these relationships with agents? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I love this question so much because I had a guy call me about 10 years ago and he said, I had met him at a networking event and he was like big money guy. And he says, Linda, okay. So I'm reserving this world-class hotel in Bali and I want to do a retreat business like you have. I want to do exactly what you have. And we've got a lot of money behind this. So tell me, how do I do it? And I said, oh, well, no big deal. You just have to spend about a decade writing books for other people, some of which become New York Times bestsellers. And then you form these really close connections with the editors that you worked with at the top five publishing houses. And then when you start your retreat business, those editors still love you. And some of them have become agents and now they'll just read all your client stuff. And as I'm talking, he's just like, oh, fuck. (laughs) But it was, it was so, it was a joyful moment for me because he was so cocky and he thought I've got money and a world-class location. I can do what you do. And I wanted to go, buddy, do you know how many thousands and tens of thousands of hours went into getting a craft and connections with people that allowed me to do what I do? And, you know, my husband had just bailed and that privilege, that male white patriarchal privilege was just like so up in my face with what he was saying. I just felt so triumphant being able to say, oh, here's all you have to do. (laughs) So not to be an asshole, but I just was very blessed. And not to say I'm the only person in the world who's had this kind of trajectory, but I just was blessed in that I had spent so many years writing and writing for publishers that then when I decided to switch and help other people, I just knew a lot of people in the industry by that point, they trusted me, they knew my work. And so it was so easy for me. And honestly, it came from such a, again, kind of like just love place because people would come to me and I would help them with their proposal. And then it's like, what am I going to do? Send them out the door to like, nothingness when I can just send the query to five agents that I know and hopefully get her read tomorrow. Why would I not do that extra step? Why would I help her only so far and then watch her have to learn the hard way and struggle and go down rabbit holes and take too many years to do it herself? Like I had to do, why would I ever want somebody to have to go through the hard way? Like I had to do, it's infinitely more fun to make it easy for them. (laughs) Like, duh. And then it's wow, it's like win, win, win again, because 
if they're happy, then word of mouth spreads and then my business keeps growing. That's a winning formula. So if I help them win, my business keeps winning. Not hard. And it it's so cool to see the parallels of same approach that you had when doing the, the dog walking and just being so in love with people's animals and pets that they end up trusting you. And it's all built on trust and love and relationships. That's how you have gone about this as well. It's like the same exact thing. They, they trust you. They love you. They value your opinion. And then that all comes full circle. Well, and it's mutual. Thank you. That's beautiful. And it's so mutual. You know, somebody said to me once, Linda, all money is green. And I Mm -hmm. said, no, it's not. I'm not going to take a client I can't help. If Mm -hmm. I don't believe in them, if I don't believe that I can help them, Mm -hmm. I can't be so in poverty thinking that I'm going to force something that doesn't feel healthy for me or for them. So there have been times where I, many times where I've turned away people and said, there's somebody out there that's going to be a better support for you. So I think I know my limitations and I can trust when I hear no to follow through. And so that again, builds trust. It's not always what somebody wants to hear, but I think overall it, it builds trust. Mm, Yeah. And you, like I, are someone who really kind of sees the value in people taking time for their writing, going away for their writing or going on retreat or or getting mentorship or coaching or whatever, not going it alone, getting a support team, but then when it's time, taking time away alone. So it's kind of like this, you have to do both. So what have you seen be the most fruitful in your own lives or your clients' lives around making time and space for their writing? Oh my gosh. Well, it's kind of like you were saying with COVID, if you couldn't read out loud, you would go crazy. Yeah. That's how people I see when a story wants to be told and somebody's not getting it done, they go batshit. Yeah. So I think we, we have to carve out that time, however we do it. And it changes, right? What works for you one month may not work for you the next month because our lives are so full with kids and illness and jobs and all of it. So I just think you have to be flexible, but you also have to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, very, very flexible with my discipline. I show up as often as I can for my creativity. I I, am a big believer in letting the muse know that you're on the job. Mm -hmm. And this is the same thing with the retreat. I think when we sign up for something, it's like our unconscious goes, ah, Mm -hmm. taking this shit seriously. Let's give her the good stuff. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm really pretty fanatical about showing up and showing the universe. I'm ready for the good stuff. And then that makes me a better writer every time. It's great that you said that because one of the quotes that I had circled, one of the many, many, this book is so dog-eared. It's like, um, your job is to figure out your best working style, then set your life up accordingly and be flexible. One schedule might work well for two months or even two years, and then it might not work at all. (laughs) (laughs) What is your mind? Yeah. 
Yeah. What does it look like for you now? How has your writing process changed? I really took time off. So I had no idea how tired I was from the constant creativity until I birthed this book. Yeah. And with the birth of this book, and this one was really, really hard. Like this one is 400 pages. Mm-hmm. Imagine corralling 62 bestselling authors and getting all their legal permissions signed off and on and on. I mean, just, it felt like every single stage of this book was Herculean. Of course it wasn't, but that's how it felt, right? Yeah. And being so productive on the podcast for so many years and then going into the editing process, I'm a massive over editor. So, you know, I edited this book a bazillion times down to the last second. And even now there's an, I just noticed the other day that Abby Wambach's bio does not include the, we can do hard things podcast. I'm like, how did we miss that? So I just, you know, emailed my editor. We've got to add this for the next one. We added it for the audio book. So I felt like it was just this never ending series of massive, massive, massive details. And I was tired, just tired. And I missed my clients because while I was on this push for the release of the book, the final edits of the book, the release of the book, the launch launching of the book, I pulled back on my retreats. I just pulled back and then wow, I missed that connection. I mean, I was on a call yesterday with five women, four of whom are dealing with a death, a close family or somebody in their family, something's going on. And they were reading their pieces and we were all crying, but it was just happy tears of connection. I was like, I miss this. Like writers are so isolated. And that's why you have your beautiful community. That's why I have mine. Because if we don't have that, friends don't like friends, right alone. If we don't have that connection with each other, the insanity that goes on in our little isolated heads is palpable. So I really needed to take some time off. However, you know, the last chapter of the book, the conclusion is how I had forgotten that I was a writer. Do you sometimes forget you're a writer? I think it's called, and I'm remembering her. She's popping back in now saying, okay, okay. Book two, you know, I've got, this is book one of two. And so the second one is now starting to write itself. Oh, I love this idea of sometimes we forget we're a writer, especially when we're wrapped up in the editing and the pitching and then the getting it out in the world and the promotion takes a lot of energy. And the other day I downloaded this time tracker app because I'm, I'm like, where does my time go? I want to see where it goes. Right. And you have to add these little tasks. And so I put in family time when I'm coaching or teaching, prepping for a retreat, blah, blah, blah. I put them all in and I was tracking my time meditation, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm going, okay. All right. I'm, I'm still spending a good amount of family time. Oh, I need to, I'm spending way too much time on email, blah, blah, blah. And I realized that writing was not even a task I had created. And I was like, I have been so, so drowning in not drowning, but like excited, but so in the, the, the stages of putting out, come home to your heart for pre-order that I was like, I haven't written 
in a little while. But you know, if you're in a a different season, that's one of my favorite quotes from the book is where Elizabeth Gilbert talks about writing in seasons. Yes. She doesn't write around the calendar. There are different seasons and you're in the promotion, you're in the launch promotion season. Yes. So it would be probably weird if you were writing. I would say that the all, all I would expect of myself in your situation would be mini micro blogs on social media, right? Because you're oh, yeah. you right to promote that beautiful book that you have coming out. Yeah. Blog posts. And maybe yeah. if you can, but I haven't been, articles for magazines that also link to selling said book, right? Right. Yeah. And it it is true. And I love that that part from Liz Gilbert where she was like, you know, the reason why I can write a book in six months is because I've been researching and doing these note cards for three years, <laughs> you know, and it was like, it was such a good reminder and it is so true. But when you said, remember that I'm a writer again, it just kind of, that's how I felt when I looked at that time tracker app the other day, I was like, I didn't even put writing in as a task in here because I've been removed a bit from the actual creative process. So two little last questions here. I like to ask little tidbits at the very end, since this is called heart of the story, what is a way that you have followed your heart lately? Lately? Mm. Oh gosh. So when I was a kid, I loved horses, but I was scared of them. I'm a dog person, right? And I always said, ah, no, no no horses. I'm a dog person. And then as I grew up, my husband, who I'm married to now, he loves horses. He got me a horse. We started riding, still scared, broken bunch of ribs here and there. Um, Green horse, green rider. But I just started to fall in love with them. And here in Arizona, there's a group of wild horses that we see when we go up into the mountains. They're so beautiful. And the government started rounding them up and they are being sent to slaughter a lot of times in Mexico. And my heart is just in the saving horses game. I just love it. I, I put it out to my book mama community. I had no idea that they would help but in telling stories, in telling their story in showing their pictures and how beautiful they are, these mothers and foals and the stallions who will kill themselves to protect them. I, um, I got this huge following of people. We call it the hashtag Alpine wild horse army Mm. and book mama people started sending in you know, $50, $500, $1,000. One woman sent in $2,000. A friend in England sent in $3,000. And we've saved the lives of like a band of horses. And I don't know that anything in my life has meant that much. I can't explain why. I can't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's karmic. I don't know if it's past lives. It is more meaningful to me than anything I've ever done. And it's put the writing in perspective because writing takes a long time. Publishing can be really slow. I've got a book out now that we've been talking about that means so much to me. And yet even promoting it is slow. Yeah. But we can save the lives of a horse captured on Friday in an auction that's going to kill it on Monday. 
Wow. That's everything. I know it's incredible to watch all that unfold on Instagram and just to see the resounding support. It's incredible. Everything. (sighs) Okay. One more question. What is a story that your heart is yearning to tell? Uh, Well, I didn't know it was yearning until you just asked, but it came up instantly. So I think it's yearning. The divorce memoir is what I mind those creativity struggling, funny stories from for beautiful writers. But the memoir is still there about the trajectory of a marriage that's falling apart. And I was just blessed to have a lot of self-help author friends on speed dial who gave me the best damn advice in the history of divorce. And I wrote it all down because I was brain dead at the time. I was in the fetal position. I couldn't remember one good thing anybody told me. So I wrote it all down and it's in the memoir and it's fucking valuable and entertaining. And I didn't realize till you asked me that I think I still really love that book. And I think I will tell that story at some point. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that reminder. Oh, I love it. You are a dream. You are love uh, just bubbling over. (laughs) You are such a connector of people. You are a supporter of writers. You um, just exude positivity. And I'm so happy that you came on today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this was a dream interview and you are a beautiful soul. And I'm so happy to know you and be on your beautiful show. I just loved this conversation about the life of a writer or really what it's like to have a dream, any sort of dream, the ups, the downs, the messy middles. But I think what we took out of it is that when there's something that we yearn to do, we can't not do it. So I hope that you will feel as inspired as I did by this conversation. And let us know what you enjoyed about the conversation on Instagram. I'm at Nadine Kenny Johnstone and Linda is at Linda underscore Sievertson. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. And Linda's beautiful book, Beautiful Writers, is available wherever books are sold. That link will go in the show notes as well. If you think that somebody could benefit from this conversation, someone who needs some inspiration today, share it with a friend. Let them know about this episode. Michelle Rado, thank you so much for all of your help with this podcast. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story, and every story has a heart. See you next week.